Hello, this is Mark Peacock, and welcome to the Travel Commons Podcast. This is Travel Commons Podcast number 193, recorded Friday, March 31st, 2023. This is the podcast giving the voice of the traveler. It's more about the journey than the destination. Two topics on this edition of the Travel Commons Podcast, still overthinking travel planning and Nashville versus Nash Vegas. So coming to you today from the Travel Commons studios in Nashville, Tennessee, after a couple of bits of travel to Chicago at the end of January, because, I don't know, really, that's the garden time of the year in Chicago. Waking up to sub-zero temperatures, wind howling off the lake. Yeah, good times. Really missed it. But then the next month, February, flying to and from Albuquerque, New Mexico for some skiing in Taos. Which reminded me of what I really actually miss about Chicago, direct flights to and from almost anywhere in the U.S. Albuquerque is about the same distance from Chicago as it is from Nashville, but what's a three and a quarter hour direct flight from Chicago turned into a six and a half hour journey from Nashville, complete with a coffee stop in Houston. Back in episode 187, I talked about having to adjust my mental travel calculus, my travel reflexes, to not living in an airport hub city for the first time in about 40 years. Those extra three hours in that Nashville to Albuquerque trip made that adjustment very real to me. When we landed, we met up with our daughter Claire and hopped the bus to the rental car center to see what Hertz had in store for us. There were five of us skiing, so I wanted to get the biggest vehicle they had, but I was playing a bit of chicken with Hertz. I only had enough Hertz points to cover a large car for the week, but they'd only let me cover one day of a specialty class vehicle like an SUV. With all the car rentals quoting $100 a day, I slammed my points down on the large car and just hoped that there would be some sort of an SUV in the five-star row when we got there. So when we rocked up to the Hertz lot, my heart sank just a bit. There was nothing, no cars in the five-star row. After a minute of staring at all the empty spaces, a woman came out of the Hertz office and said, Oh, oh, hey, we've upgraded you to President's Circle. I turn 90 degrees. I see an entire row of SUVs. We picked the biggest one, a Ford Explorer with about 16,000 miles and captain's chairs for everybody. It really started off the trip on the right note. The trip home at the end of the week, everyone's flight was blown sideways by the big winter storm two days before. It actually didn't surprise us. It had blown the storm, had blown us off the mountain, off of Taos, with 50 to 70 mile an hour winds two days before. So we weren't surprised when the flight delay notices started dinging our iPhones. United hit us with a two-hour delay. Apparently, our flight didn't make it out of Fresno the night before, so it was at least two or three hops behind. But since we had a three-hour layover in Denver, the only thing that changed was the airport bar that we were killing time in. Claire, however, caught the worst of it, trying to get home to New York. With no direct flights between Albuquerque and LaGuardia, she had to connect through O'Hare both on her way out and her way back. Now, the flight out went without a hitch. The flight back, the first leg, Albuquerque to O'Hare, fine. It was that second leg, the O'Hare to LaGuardia one, that went badly wrong, which I have to say surprised me, because those flights, the flights between O'Hare and LaGuardia, they're like a shuttle. They're like every hour like clockwork. But for Claire, 
The shuttle broke, literally. After an hour delay, they loaded the plane up, de-iced the wings, and then they found out that the engine was broken. So, boom, back to the gate where, you guessed it, they figured out it couldn't be fixed. Two and a half hours past departure time, Claire pings me. It's starting to snow. I doubt I'm getting on any plane tonight. I told her, don't, don't, don't write it off just yet. It's not a weather issue, so American will have to pay for a hotel and breakfast for you and 120 of your closest friends or passengers. That fact alone will cause them to look hard for another plane for you. And that's exactly what they did. It took them a couple of hours to scrounge one up, but Claire got home that night, or rather that morning at 3 a.m. Always amazes me how an airline can figure out a solution when it's their money on the line. So following up... Back to that flight delay in Albuquerque, my bar tab from waiting out the two-hour delay got me rethinking my stance on airport lounges, especially now that the U.S. ones have upped to their game on food and alcohol. Now, it wouldn't have changed anything in Albuquerque. That airport's too small. There's no lounges. Indeed, I think we were in the only real bar. But elsewhere, now, when we fly internationally, I usually get lounge access through my American or United status. In the U.S., I gave up my American and then my United lounge memberships years ago because, quite honestly, I just wasn't using them. Now, I love American Express's Centurion lounges. I've talked about this in multiple podcasts before. But starting February, they're charging 50 bucks to bring in any guest. And then on top of that, hiking the annual fee for the Platinum card to 695 bucks a year. I have to tell you, that math just didn't work out for me. I don't know. Maybe I could just do day passes, maybe use Lounge Buddy for that, or run the math on, I don't know, the not-quite-platinum cards from Chase and Capital One, the ones that include Priority Pass membership. I don't know. A couple of voided bar tabs may cover those annual fees. Now, in the last episode, wading into the debate between booking direct with an airline or a hotel or instead through a third party, I told the story about how a, uh, I don't know, how do I say this politely, false misleading, just plain wrong property listing on booking.com tricked us, literally tricked us into booking a night in a place that looked to be, again, how do I say this, much more geared to hourly stays, if you know what I mean. And then how Booking.com did absolutely nothing to resolve our dispute. Now, longtime listener Nick Gassman pointed me to a Guardian article where a Booking.com customer wrote to their consumer affairs reporter with a very similar experience, dare I say, scam, uh, misleading listing, shock when opening the door to the actual place, walking, running away to find another place to stay, getting dinged with a night's charge for being a no-show, and then Booking.com. Booking.com going palms up when asked to fix it. I mean, the interesting twist on this one was, with the host reporting them as no-shows, they couldn't leave a review on Booking.com about this property to warn others. Nick also sent me a link to a Reddit post about a guy going into arbitration with Airbnb, also disputing a no-show when he canceled a place that had security cameras on the inside of a studio apartment. Not a big enough place to hide from those cameras. 
these are reminders that for all their web pages and press releases with large, bold-faced headlines about trust and safety, their legal terms and conditions in much smaller font says that all they do is connect hosts and guests. They're not a party to that transaction and don't have any control over the quality or safety of your experience. Now, I'm not saying don't use them. We use Booking and Airbnb all the time and have had one, I don't know, maybe two or three bad experiences. What I'm saying is go in eyes wide open. In this very hot travel market, Booking and Airbnb feel they need to take care of hosts right now more than they need to take care of guests. A couple of months ago in episode 191, I said, and in more travel document good news, the U.S. State Department opened up online passport renewals on what they're calling a limited release. Well, listener Rob Holbrook wrote in and saying he's not feeling the good vibes. Rob said, I tried the renewal portal, but it was constantly down. Then they shut it down completely. I'm not sure if the pilot outlived its usefulness, if passport renewal is too complex to do online, or if it opened unexpected security risks. And Rob, all of those could be very, very reasonable answers. They just haven't given those as answers. The State Department shut down the renewal portal in early February to, what they said, implement customer feedback to improve the process. Go figure. Back then, they said it would be back up in March. Now they're saying the infamous TBD. All you you IT project managers, program managers are going, ah, I know what that means. I've lived that life. But anyhow, I'm actually, I'm just hoping they're not using the same IT gang that coded up the first version of the Obamacare healthcare.gov site. So anyhow, we're back to sending paper forms in, and that wait time is slowly creeping up. Before spring break season, state was saying 8 to 11 weeks. Now, last week, they added on two weeks, now quoting 10 to 13 weeks. So if you think about that, it's up to a three-month wait. If you're planning to hit Europe this summer, you need to sprint down to Walgreens for that passport photo right now. And hey, if you've got any stories, questions, comments, tips, rants, the voice of the traveler, send them along like Nick and Rob did to comments, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-S at TravelCommons.com. You can send a Twitter message to M. Peacock. Post your thoughts on the Travel Commons Facebook page or Instagram at Travel Commons. There you go. Or you can always go old school, post the comments on the website at TravelCommons.com. First topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is I'm still overthinking travel planning. (laughs) Story of my life. Last summer, back in episode 188, I talked about a great frequent flyer deal on my Croatia to Italy flights, completely busting through that traditional two cents a mile benchmark that I've used forever. It got me thinking that, I don't know, maybe the inflation in award redemption requirements hadn't caught up with the real dollar cost increases for flights. And so I ended up shooting a gap between those two and getting a smoking deal. Well, I'm here to tell you that booking flights to go over to Holland over the Netherlands next month, that gap has snapped shut. 
I first started looking at KLM, the Dutch airline, and its SkyTeam partner Delta in hopes of a decent flight selection. And as importantly, I got a slug of Amex membership uh, rewards points that I'm looking to burn off. KLM and Delta are prime transfer partners. But after a couple of hours of twisting our travel plans in knots around their flight matrices, the best award flights that I could come up with were giving me three quarters of a cent per mile. That was not going to work. So guess what? Those MX points still in the bank. Next up, British Airways, because they actually have a direct flight between Heathrow and Nashville. But I quickly ran into the same problem I always have with BA Avios points. They don't cover fuel surcharges. And for some reason, BA prices their fare low and then slams a huge fuel surcharge on top of it. I mean, I don't know why they do that. Maybe there's a tax angle somewhere. It just doesn't work. The final ticket price comes out the same as the other carriers, but a flight booked with a similar amount of miles ends up requiring a huge cash payment, like, you know, two to three times what other carriers want. So those Avios points also stay put. I don't know. Maybe I'll push them over to Iberia Avios for a trip to Spain or Portugal next year. So what started with a couple of numbers scrawled on a piece of paper quickly turned into a spreadsheet with columns for the different possible travel windows, leaving on a Wednesday versus a Thursday, returning on a Friday versus a Saturday, and then three rows for each carrier. The first cell in the matrix, the cost of buying the ticket straight out. The second cell split between miles and cash payment. The third cell, the cents per mile calc. Is it worth burning the points or just buying the ticket? Woof. After all that, the best deal actually ended up on United at 1.54 cents a mile, a bit off the two cents a mile benchmark. But looking at valuation tables on a couple of websites, the Points Guy, Bankrate, and Frequent Miler, I could see it was a solid deal, so I booked it. Although I do have to say that I paid more attention than usual to the United routings after reading a New York Times article that longtime listener and contributor Chris Chufo sent me about the hassles people are having getting refunds or compensation from Lufthansa, who is United's main transatlantic star alliance partner. Reading through the litany of complaints, I have to tell you, it really did surprise me. I've flown Lufthansa a lot italicized, bold-faced a lot. I feel I know their hub, Frankfurt Airport, better than any other European airport, and I can't recall any big issue I've had with their service. Indeed, back in 2013, when flying Lutanza home from a family vacation, a weather delay in Amsterdam caused us to miss our connection home from Frankfurt. I talked about this in episode 106. When we got to Frankfurt after the delayed flight in from Amsterdam, we had no problem getting food and hotel vouchers and then getting rebooked on the next morning's flight out. Great service, no arguments, and get this, we were actually flying on United Miles. It was the complete opposite treatment of what we'd expect from, say, United. But that was then. This New York Times article quotes a German travel industry exec saying that Lufthansa apparently got aggressive about swerving European Union customer protection laws during COVID. So the question stands, was this just their reaction to a pandemic-caused cash crunch? 
Or is it a new set point, cutting costs in customer service to fund lower fares to match up better with European budgeteers like Ryanair and Wizz Air and EasyJet? I hope not, personally. But still, when booking this trip to Amsterdam, I clicked through to the flight details to make sure that I hadn't booked a Lufthansa code share, that I was actually flying on United Metal, which is quite a change, because 10 years ago, it was the other way around when I was looking for what I thought was much better Lufthansa service. The second topic on today's Travel Commons podcast is Nashville versus Nash Vegas. As I mentioned at the start of episode 188, in July, we relocated the Travel Commons studio and the rest of our worldly belongings from Chicago to Nashville. After 25 years into my fourth tour of duty in Chicago, I decided I wanted to change the scenery. And it has definitely been that. Moving from the third most populous city in the U.S. to the 20th, from the eighth highest population density to the 178th most dense of the U.S.'s top 200 cities. We joke that whenever we put an address into Google Maps, uh, it could be completely on the other side of the city. But no matter how far away it looks, when we hit the directions button, we're told it's only a 15-minute drive. It used to take us 15 minutes just to get out of our neighborhood in Chicago. So when we told our friends our move plans, just about everyone replied, oh, we love Nashville. We look forward to visiting. Once we got down here and started knocking around, we realized that what they were talking about, what our friends were talking about, was Nash Vegas. The five blocks of honky-tonks on Lower Broadway, the three blocks over to the Country Music Hall of Fame, the open-air party buses cruising that perimeter. They're full of bachelorette partiers yelling out at every red light. It's definitely something to be seen, something to be experienced. It brings a steady stream of tourists. I'm always amazed at how full Broadway sidewalks are at, say, 1130 in the morning on a Tuesday. But as you might have guessed, Irene and I were not often on Broadway. But that's not to say the tourists have it completely wrong. Nashville is Music City with a capital M. If you fly in on Southwest or American, it starts with walking past live music at Tootsie's as you're making your way up Concourse C. And then it just continues. Irene and I are convinced that there's a law requiring any gathering of 10 or more people to have a stage with a live performer. First couple of months we were down here, we hit all the area farmers markets we could find, and just about everyone had a stage with either a singer-songwriter playing a guitar or just a full-on band. Peak Nashville for us was when we were in line at a local hot chicken joint watching a guy with a guitar set up his gear and start to play just inside of the restaurant's entry door. It's like having live music at a McDonald's. I was talking to a bartender at an East Nashville place called Vinyl Tap, a beer bar, vinyl record store, live music venue, of course. We got talking. He'd moved down from New York to be a session trombone player. And that's not an uncommon conversation for me to have with people. In New York and L.A., bartenders are working between acting gigs. In Nashville, they're musicians between sessions. 
And so we've waded into that live music scene much more than we did in Chicago. In January, we made the rounds of Monday night singer-songwriter open mic nights. Some were pretty informal. At a microbrewery, Tennessee Brew Works, the MC put out a legal pad at 5 p.m. for people to sign up just write their name down, and then took them in that order, each person doing two songs. At Bluebird Cafe, very famous place, a little bit more structure. Online signups opened at 11 a.m. That night, there were two lines to get in. To the left of the front door, the folks who had made it on the list, and they were just lined up to play their best song to the people who were lined up on the right of the door who had showed up to listen. And everyone, listeners and singers, sat together in the audience. Irene and I ended up at a two-top right in front of the stage. On our left was a guy who drove in from Clarksville, Tennessee to play, and he was there with his wife, who was videoing his time on stage. Behind us was a table full of Canadians, including a woman from Quebec who sang in French, and a guy who'd flown in from Vancouver that morning just to play his song on that stage. And he wasn't the only one. There were people on the stage who'd driven in from Houston, Little Rock, Michigan, Nebraska. I just, I had not realized how big a draw this music scene was. Maybe three weeks ago, I saw a blurb on Twitter about a show put on by the Steel Guitar Arts Council called Don't Fear the Steel Guitar. Now, that feels very Nashville. And at 15 bucks a ticket, I mean, really, how could you go wrong? Plus, it was at the performance space at Jack White's Third Man Records, which had been on Irene's list of places to check out. So we went. Back to my bartender discussions, one of the things I've noticed early on about going to shows in Nashville is, A, how many working musicians there are here, not hobbyists, not passion project people, but people whose main paying job, day in and day out, is to play music, session musicians, live backing musicians. And then the other thing I notice is that some of these smaller shows are session players getting up on stage with their friends to play, often to an audience of other friends and family. At the Steel Guitar Show, when the first guy, the first Steel Guitar player, hit the stage, a little girl behind us called out, Hey, Grandpa! It ended up being a very interesting show, one that immediately attacked the stereotype of pedal steel guitars as twangy country music instruments. Grandpa was then followed by a father and son pedal steel and cello duo, who were followed by a guy doing pedal steel ambient music. Very interesting stuff, and stuff I'm not sure I'd see anywhere else. And maybe that's it. Maybe it's those Broadway honky-tonk cover bands and the mainstream stream country music recording sessions that pays the bills and so lets these musicians play different, some might say weird stuff on their own time. But if and when you get down to Nashville, spend an afternoon and night on Lower Broadway because how can you say you've been to Nashville and not do that? But Save some time to check out the smaller places, the open mic nights. Make sure you see the Nashville music scene, not just the Nash Vegas one. Okay. 
Okay, that's it. That's the end of Travel Commons podcast number 193. Hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you decide to stay subscribed. You can find us and listen to the current episodes. Uh, I'd say probably about a year's backlog of episodes on all the main podcast sites, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music. You can also ask Alexa, Siri, or Google to play Travel Commons on your smart speakers. You can click on the link in this episode's description in your podcast app to get to the show notes page at travelcommons.com for a transcript of the episode and any links that I might have mentioned. Uh, if you're not yet subscribed, there's a drop-down subscribe menu at the top of the show notes page and actually at the top of every page and travelcommons.com and then along the side of each page you'll find the links to all the travel commons socials if you have a story thought comment gripe the voice of the traveler send them along text or audio file to comments c-o-m-m-e-n-t-s at travelcommons.com and peacock on twitter write them on the travel commons page on facebook or instagram post them on the website when you click through to the website you can post uh, your comments right there at travelcommons.com thanks to everyone who takes the time to send in emails tweets post comments on the website i really do appreciate it and until we talk again travel safe thanks for stopping by the travel commons bye now